Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we come to the end of a year and uh, the, the precipice of a new year, and maybe we recognize or see where we have fallen short and not been who we want to be. Maybe we have goals and dreams of what we would like to be in the coming year. Father, may those impulses remind us that we desperately need you. We need your power. We need your drawing near. We need the presence of your spirit. We need the triune God in our lives, in our minds, and in our hearts if we are to be anything. So, Father, would you draw near to us as we draw near to you this morning and in this year? Would our feeble and futile attempts at drawing near to you nonetheless be rewarded in your grace? And may all of our mistakes and our weaknesses be reminders, not so much of our failings, but of your successes. Where Jesus came and conquered, when we were destroyed, where Jesus came and won, where we lost, where Jesus came and had success, where we failed, where Jesus came and was righteous, when we were unrighteous. May we find our worth, our dignity, and our hope squarely and only in him. And we pray, Father, for his return. Would you make us ready for it, even as we just sang? And would he truly be coming soon? May we be your faithful witnesses until that day. May we hold fast the testimony of Jesus until he returns. We pray that the terrors and trials of this world would not shake our faith, but only make it grow stronger, and that we might be those messengers, ambassadors, and witnesses of him that go to the ends of the earth that he might draw all people to himself, even as he promised. Make us a part of that. May the upcoming year be a year of gospel faithfulness and gospel flourishing in our hearts, in our cities, and in our world. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Turn with me to Mark 13. Uh, we are in a brief Advent uh, series. Couldn't think of the word. Series. It's going to be a long morning if I can't come up with that word. Um, we are in a brief Advent series. And I know it's after Advent. That's okay. Uh, we are thinking about his second Advent this morning. And as you turn there, I just want to draw your attention to the fact that, you know, we've generally printed these or at least published these every year for the last few years. Uh, I updated by slapping the new year on it uh, and printing it on slightly better paper. And uh, these will be in the back. Appreciate Chris helping by uh, folding some of those for us. And uh, these are just a Bible plan. Uh, and inside, if this is not your cup of tea, there's some suggestions on some other Bible plans. But let's be people in God's word this year, whatever that looks like for you. I even got that in some other languages if you need them. Um, but Mark chapter 13, verses 24 through 27. Very short passage this morning. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. 
and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. It's been a little while, uh, it feels like at least, maybe it hasn't, since there was this manic rush of prophecy proclaimers. Um, The last big one I remember was 2017, when people were claiming that some sort of astronomical, astrological alignment in September of that year would fulfill what the Bible speaks of in Revelation 12. It was so obviously wrong and so unnecessarily complicated that I never bothered to even try to understand it. Clearly the world didn't end. Um, But Christians looking to the night sky to find spiritual messages. I think there were some Old Testament laws about that. But now, here we are in 2023, Israel is at war and people are getting a little cray-cray because people do that when Israel goes to war, which is to say fairly often since 1948. That was not on the elders' mind when we chose uh, passages for this series or when we chose that I should preach through the book of Revelation next year, but here we are. Um, I should warn you, though, if you want charts and graphs and secret knowledge and the answers to all mysteries, you are in the wrong place. I don't have that for you. Uh, I won't have that for you. I don't think most of that helps us to understand the Bible or God or ourselves. But we're going to talk about the future because Jesus talked about the future. He didn't talk about the future to make us anxious. He talked about the future to give us peace. He didn't talk about the future to make our minds restly inquisitive like the child who keeps asking, are we there yet? He talked about the future so that we might wait with patience. In the last two weeks, we closed out the season of waiting Advent by remembering that Jesus came, the long-promised coming of the Jewish Messiah who was God with us, Emmanuel. This morning, next Sunday, we're not quite ready to leave Advent, like I said, as we remember how God's people waited for his coming, we now reflect on the fact that he is coming again. And that second coming, as we sometimes call it, is very different than the first coming. And we're going to explore a small picture of what that means. And this morning, we just want to see this simple truth that Jesus is coming in glory. Our passage is a a small sample of a larger teaching by Jesus given to what appear to have been his three closest disciples, Peter, James, John. They're in Jerusalem to celebrate the feast of the Passover, the Jewish holiday that remembers how God spared his people from judgment and how he rescued them from oppression and slavery in Egypt. And this was Jesus' last Passover before his crucifixion and death. And since that week is carefully detailed by Mark and by the other gospel writers, Matthew and Luke and John, and because we know a little bit about history, it seems like this episode that we're reading about this morning can be dated pretty well to a Tuesday, most likely March the 31st, A.D. 33. From the end of chapter 11 through the top of 13, Mark details that Tuesday for Jesus. And after departing from nearby Bethany, he and his disciples made their way to Jerusalem. They entered the temple grounds, and his authority is challenged at the bottom of chapter 11. And then in chapter 12, Mark writes about Jesus continuing to teach in the temple while also interacting with his critics and some people who were just curious. And all of that's probably just a mere summary of the day's highlights, snippets of longer teachings put in abbreviated form for us. And as they leave the temple in chapter 13, one of Jesus' disciples marvels at the architecture of the building. Herod the Great had begun 
renovating the temple and greatly expanding its footprint several decades before that. And it took several decades to complete. In fact, in some measures, it was not complete until a number of years after Jesus died. The temple had been built, as some of you know, originally several centuries, though, earlier, while the Jews were still subjects of the Persian Empire. And you can read about that in Ezra and Nehemiah, Haggai, and the last paragraph at the end of Second Chronicles. That temple was a lot less glorious than the one that had been built originally by Solomon, the son of David, the one that had been destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. But Herod's updates to the temple were fantastic and likely surpassed anything that Solomon had ever done in brilliance. Even though it was destroyed in AD 70, visitors still marvel at the craftsmanship of the masonry that still remains. And we can only imagine what that would have looked like to a faithful Jew just over 1,990 years ago. But Jesus quickly tempered his disciples' excitement, warning him that despite their earthly glory, the temple stones would be overturned and brought down. The entire structure would be destroyed, he said. And Jesus leaves the city, at least as it stood at the time, and he climbs the hill known as the Mount of Olives. Today that hill is inside Jerusalem, but just like then, you can look out from that location and you can view the Temple Mount. But of course, today there is no temple to see, just the dome on the rock built sometime after the Muslim conquest of A.D. 637. And from that vantage point, looking at the temple again, maybe after a long day of ministering in the temple, Peter and James and John asked Jesus when this would happen and how they would know that it's about to happen. And what follows is probably one of the most difficult teachings of Jesus to understand. He speaks of wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes in various places and famines. Words like that cause people to fret, to be scared of the end of the world anytime things get a little bit disastrous. But then Jesus talks about an abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be. And a time of tremendous trials that should cause those living in and around Jerusalem to flee. And there's this promise that there will be false messiahs that Jesus' disciples should be prepared to ignore. And all of this is really complicated. And it's confusing And it's not what we're focused on today. But they are important context for what Jesus mentions in these verses. What almost everyone agrees on, though, is that Jesus was no doubt talking about the destruction of that temple in AD 70 by a Roman general named Titus. An event so horrible and so tragic for any faithful Jew, that it would have had apocalyptic importance. And in discussing something so terrible, something so quite literally of biblical proportions, it naturally carries Jesus on to things even farther future. Things at the end of history as we know it. And that was a common approach uh, for the prophets of the Old Testament, like Isaiah and Ezekiel, for example, who, who saw things happening in this world or things that would happen in the near future as precursors and figures and foreshadowings of the great end of all things. And that's where we pick up in our passage in verse 24. And there's a when, there's a what, And there's a what for. 
in these four short verses. Jesus begins to speak of the when, but he doesn't speak about it in a way maybe that we would hope, but in a way I think we need. He says, in those days, and that phrase, we got a couple phrases, in that day, in those days, they are common in the Old Testament prophets when they refer to a, a time when, when God's power is revealed from heaven in such a way to destroy sin and to restore his people and magnify his name. It's not always directly related to the end times, but it usually has end time connotations. It is generally a good time for God's people, and a bad time for those who aren't God's people, including those who pretend to be, who think they are God's people, but who aren't. And that's maybe particularly ominous because Jesus is combining this language with events that are very bad for the Jewish people, people who would have likely thought of themselves as God's people. But as the Old Testament often demonstrated, those who worshipped God in spirit and truth were just a subset of those who claimed to be his worshipers. Jesus also says that those days will be after that tribulation. He's speaking about a time after all the great trials he described earlier in the chapter. The details of Mark 13 can be confusing, but as I've read it, and I've read it over the years, I am more and more convinced that many, most, or all of the hardships that Jesus describes in this chapter are routine. When he speaks about wars and rumors of wars, he isn't saying that there will be all sorts of wars just before the end of the world. His point is that the way of our world is war. Wars and all of their horrors are part and parcel with this broken earth. And so when we hear about those things, they shouldn't cause us to lose perspective. They shouldn't cause us to lose hope. The same is true about famines and earthquakes. Because this world itself is trembling and waiting for a day when it will be completely shaken. Because our earth is so full of injustice brought on by our sin, the way of this world is often painful. Right now, Russia is at war with Ukraine in a conflict that threatens daily to spread across Europe. We heard the end of this week that Russian missiles flew over one of our close allies in the region. And these things can cause us to become nervous. Israel is at war with Hamas. And regional players like Lebanon and Jordan and Iran, Yemen, threaten to make things suddenly much worse. But this isn't new. World War II, even with dropping atomic weapons on the Japanese people, did not usher in the end of the world. All the horrors of the Russian Civil War, the Holocaust, the Atlantic slave trade, the Rwandan genocide, the Chinese Cultural Revolution, the Black Death, COVID-19, None of these were the end of the world. 
These things were normal. It's sad. It's terrible. It's awful that these things are part of the normal course of our world. But that is the reality. And Jesus doesn't want us looking in the horrors of our world for some magic sign telling us that the end is here. The horrors of this world are just that. There are things that should make us grieve. The sinfulness that we have wrought and have emboldened us to preach the gospel that can rescue us from these evils. Jesus is speaking about after these things. A time after this normal course of the world, which is often very bitter, has reached a dividing point, a climax, a breaking point. After the terror, after the violence, after the suffering, after the trials, after the destruction of the temple. When? After. Then something big will happen. Jesus says, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. I like the way that one scholar put it that these words should be understood as more than a metaphor and less than literal. I think that's a good way to think about it. But Jesus' point is that there is something unmistakable in those days, something that is unmissable in the heavens. And these sorts of images about the sun and the moon and the stars, they dot the prophets of the Old Testament And the idea is at least this, that all the great forces of nature that seem uncontrollable and in fact are uncontrollable to us human beings, but yet we rely on them for our very lives, all of those things will become comparatively very small and very weak in the face of God's great power. We sense this today, and you can only imagine it all the more in a, in a more agrarian, a rural society, but the, the light of the sun and the moon and the stars is all we have to see by. It's all we have to grow crops by that allow us to eat and live. It's what allows us to navigate the deserts and the oceans of the world. It's what allows us to find safety and to find a refuge. All of that will begin to fail. When Jesus says that the powers in the heavens will be shaken, it's quite possible he means something more than astronomy that he's speaking of evil forces in the heavenly realms, even those creatures, call them demons, call them whatever you will, but even they will tremble. And there's a lot we could say on this. But in terms of the when, it sure seems like it will happen when it cannot be confused when it cannot be lost on God's people. It's going to be obvious. It's in the future. It's sometime after a great deal of distress. And it is when something so blindingly obvious occurs that we cannot help but see it. I read another author who said, uh, wrote to the effect that Jesus does not save us by our knowledge, but by our faith. And what he meant by that in this context is that 
there are many Christians, or at least purported Christians, who think that they have to figure out what the timing is going to be, or what the sign is going to be, or what the danger is going to be, so that they can avoid that thing, so that they can be saved. But that would be a salvation through like arithmetic and knowledge and math. And we're not saved through knowledge. Knowledge is good. We, if we love someone, we want to get to know them. And so if we love God, we want to know God. So I'm not dismissing knowledge, but it's not what saves us. What saves us is faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so when people are out there worried about whether they're going to receive some mark of the beast, and so they're spending all their time trying to figure out what is the mark of the beast so I don't get the mark of the beast, they've missed the point. I know that's not sometimes what we want to hear, We want the Bible to give us a day. We want the Bible to give us a date, but it doesn't. It gives us a promise. And a promise has to be believed. A promise has to be relied upon. A promise has to be waited upon expectantly, but also trustingly and patiently. Impatience is a symptom of of a lack of trust. And what Jesus and God's word consistently push us toward is a when that demands faithfulness that's shown, that shows up in our patience. When it happens, what will it be? That's the second point, and it's really the heart of our passage. It says, And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Now, this term, Son of Man, that was one of Jesus' preferred designations for himself. And on one hand, we don't talk about this very much, but on one hand, it means he was a human being. There's a, still an expression in some Semitic languages, like Arabic, that if somebody is just a son of Adam, it's just a way of saying, I'm, just, I'm only human. I'm a son of Adam. And so Jesus is pointing to his humanity, but he's going beyond that because he's saying, I'm not a son of Adam. He says, I am the son of Adam, the Man, the perfect representation of humankind. But even further, this term, son of man, was used by the prophet Daniel, as we read responsively this morning, to describe this glorious figure that he sees in a dream. And he sees this figure who appears to be human. He appears to Daniel to be like a son of man. That's why Daniel says, it looked human. But it wasn't, he just couldn't say from what he saw in his dream that it was that simple. And part of the reason why he can't say it quite that simply is that he sees this figure that looks like a human receiving all the honors of deity from God himself. And so this figure seems to be at once both God and man. And this is very mysterious in the Old Testament. Daniel says he saw something like a son of man receiving all this power and glory that belongs to God alone. And Jesus is saying, I am that son of man. And Jesus' language is similar to Daniel's in some other ways as well. Daniel also saw this son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. If you do a Bible search on the word 
clouds, you will see that it is often used, maybe even the majority of the time, used as a metaphor for the power and the majesty of God. God is so mighty and so glorious that he can use the untouchable clouds as his own vehicle. Even though powerful storms, cyclones, hurricanes, tornadoes come with the clouds and destroy entire cities, God controls them. And they are no more to him than the dirt that is kicked up while walking across a dry little league field in August is to a 12-year-old boy. Make no mistake. Jesus is using the language of deity, the language of godness, to describe himself. And it's fitting because God's coming in or with or on the clouds is often a picture of the day of final judgment in the Bible. And Jesus is putting himself in that place. And we're told that they will see it. Now, I know usually when people just say they, and they don't specify who they are, uh, you know that a bunch of nonsense is going to come out of their mouth, because usually they who are doing something to you, they are doing it. We don't know who they are, and we don't know what they're doing, but it's bad. Stay away from them. Right here, the they is generic, because who's going to see it? They will see it. Who is they? Exactly. They is everyone. And maybe that's why John, who's one of the three who's with Jesus that, that day, would write at the beginning of the book of Revelation, as we'll see in a couple weeks, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. But notice how he is coming. Or maybe notice how he isn't coming. This, this is not the humble baby Jesus, poor, wrapped in swaddling cloths, whose parents can only offer the uh, sacrifice of the two doves, the two pigeons, the sacrifice of the poor in the temple when Jesus is born. Nor is this the Jesus who is whipped and beaten and flogged and hung on a Roman crucifix for the sake of the sins of sinners. This is not the Jesus who was spit on and mocked. This is not the Jesus who was harassed. This is not the Jesus who grew and developed in wisdom and stature and wrestled with all of the difficulties and trials of this world even as we do. This Jesus is glorious. Where when he came the first time, he was humble. This Jesus is strong, not a baby. And this Jesus is not poor, but he is rich with the riches of heaven. At Christmas, we love to celebrate the wise men coming. We always make three wise men because they brought three gifts, but it doesn't say there was three wise men. But they bring frankincense, gold, and myrrh. And it's often pointed out how fitting the gifts are, that myrrh was a costly spice uh, that we used for embalming 
the dead. Imagine bringing that to someone who was just born. You're bringing the preparations for this death as if to say this child was born to die. But frankincense might be offered in a temple to a god in worship. And gold is a a gift fitting for royalty and kings. We might say that Jesus, the myrrh that Jesus received at his birth was fitting for his time on earth. And that the incense that he was offered at his birth was fitting for the time now where he is enthroned at the right hand of the Father and we worship him in spirit and truth. And that gold was fitting for the return of that king when he will appear in all of his glory. That's the what of his coming. His first coming, the what of that coming was humble, it was small, it was inglorious. But the what here is that he, in those days, will come again, and it will be big. It will be unmissed. It will be powerful. It will be glorious. It will be magnificent. Rather than a quiet stall in Bethlehem, it will be the noisy, clamoring gong of the heavens where every eye will see him. Why or what for? Jesus says he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. So what will Jesus be doing at his return? What will he be accomplishing? What is he returning to do? Well, one key thing that Jesus wants his followers to know is that he is coming for them. He is coming to restore his people. Jesus uses a few different images here in this, in this one little sentence. He says that uh, he will gather his elect from the four winds. And so what does that tell us? It tells us that God's people are scattered. They are spread out. The four winds being a picture of all the directions of the earth. Maybe, maybe we're even to imagine that like seed and it has been blown across the face of the earth, so God's people have been scattered across the face of the earth. But, but the point still remains. God's people are scattered. They're not centered in Jerusalem. They're not centered in a little strip of land. You can call it Canaan, call it Palestine, call it Israel, whatever you want to call it. It's not there. God's people. God dwells with his people, and his people are scattered. And we feel that today, don't we? I hope you feel that. It's why sometimes we pray on Sunday mornings for our brothers and sisters in Christ in different regions and different countries, occasionally different specific churches, because they belong to the same Lord that we do. And we have more in common, we in this room who, ha- who worship Jesus Christ, have more in common with an Iranian who professes a love for Jesus as the Messiah living in the outskirts of Tehran than we do with a flag-waving American who worships nothing 
or Allah or Krishna or a God of their imagination. We have more in common with a Christian hiding to worship in a back room of Shanghai than we do with an English-speaking Canadian who knows where to find the closest McDonald's. We have more in common with those who worship the Messiah than anyone who doesn't worship the Messiah. We sometimes talk in premarital counseling or, or, or things like that about our relationship with our spouse and, and the, the prospect of children. And there's a reminder that we love our children dearly, but our, but our spouse will be with us until we die and our children will be with us hopefully just 18 years, right? And so, so our relationship with our spouse has to be stronger than our relationship with our children because one of those relationships is more permanent. Your relationship with any random person on this earth will last 5, 10, 15, 30 years, 50 years. But your relationship with that person you've never met who loves Jesus Christ, who waits expectantly for his return, though he doesn't speak your language, though she doesn't have your political views, that relationship will last eternally. And so where do we cast in our lot? I choose to cast in my share with God's people, whatever they look like, whatever they sound like, wherever they might be. Scattered though we be in this life, it will not always be true, for Jesus is coming to gather his people. He calls them his elect, his chosen ones. And I, I'm not going to get into a debate this morning. We don't have time for that about what that means exactly to be God's chosen ones. But Suffice it to say, the Bible speaks of this term, election, and you, you can wrestle out the philosophical implications of it as you will, but it means at least this, that God knows who are his, God knows who belongs to him, and he will not miss them. So many Christians are worried about missing God. But if you worship Jesus, God will not miss you when he comes. He knows who are is. He will find you and he will bring you home. John writes in Revelation 7, 17. Beautiful picture that really it follows on the heels of what we spoke about last week if you were here with Jesus being this good shepherd. John writes in Revelation 7, for the lamb, speaking of Jesus, he's the lamb because he was sacrificed for sin. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. The lamb becomes the shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Jesus is coming to gather his people into one flock. There'll be the speckled sheep, there'll be the black sheep, there'll be the white sheep, there'll be the brown sheep and the gray sheep. There will be all the different mutts of sheep and they will be in one 
flock. And he will care for them, and he will love them, and he will provide for them, and he will be gracious to them. The point is that in no small part, Jesus is coming for his people. And he will be with them. He will be with us. And he will not leave any behind. Despite what movie titles might tell you otherwise. Brothers and sisters, if that is who you are, if you are followers of Jesus, the Messiah, know this, he is coming. And his coming will not be like his coming before because this time he comes in glory. This time he comes with all the power of heaven, all the riches of heaven, the power he laid down to come and be among us The first time, he will bring with him the second time. And when that happens, we don't know. But it will be after. And it will be after the pains of this world. We know that it will be when it is unmistakable. We know that it is sure. And because of that, we can wait expectantly with patience. Even even as Israel waited for Jesus to come, for the Messiah to come for hundreds of years, thousands of years. And when he came, he was not exactly what many of them expected. Because it's easy to look back on the prophecies, but it's easy to look back on the the word of Scripture and say, aha, I see now how the Messiah looks like this. But there was some crypticness before the revelation of who Jesus was. In the same way, there is some crypticness about the coming again of Jesus. And I suspect we will all be a little bit surprised by exactly how it looks but we have God's word that it will happen. And that is our hope and our encouragement because it means that God is coming in the person of Jesus for us, to gather us, to restore us, and to give us the peace and the provision of his shepherding power. And maybe that's not where you're at. Maybe you are not a worshiper of Jesus. Maybe you are not a person who follows him and honors him and and considers him to be your Messiah and your Lord. And that is not good, but okay. And what I mean by that is You haven't walked out yet, and you're like the man in Mark chapter 12. Jesus deals with some Pharisees who are hostile toward him, and he deals with some Pharisees who are hostile toward him, and then he deals with this one scribe who asks, uh, which, which commandment is important of all? And Jesus tells him, well, it's, it's the uh, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. And, and this scribe says, oh, that's absolutely right. This is, this is better and more important than all the sacrifices. And Jesus says to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Now, it doesn't say he's a believer. He hasn't come to follow Jesus, but... He's curious. He's present. He's still there. He hasn't walked away yet. And so if that's you, if you're curious, you're intrigued by this Jesus, then know this, that he came 
to rescue his people. His name, Jesus, meaning Savior, came to save his people from their sins. He did that, like we saw last week, by giving up his life. Dying because sin brings death. But although he was sinless, he died to pay the price that people like me deserve. And he is coming again to rid the world of evil and to restore his people and to bring them the peace and the provision he has promised. And we would love to talk with you more about that. If you're online, you can send us a message. If you're here, talk to the person next to you. Good chance they can answer that question for you. What does that mean to follow Jesus? Who is he? Why does it matter? Because there is a day coming that will not be missed when he comes with all the glories of heaven. for his people. Will you be one of those he comes to get? Let's pray. Father, even as you teach us in your word to test ourselves to see if we are in the faith, to, to, to check our hearts and make sure that we are true, would you, by your spirit, correct us and guide us and show us who we are and who we belong to. And if there be any uh, mistake on our part, may we come in truth and spirit and fall at the feet of Jesus and worship him. God, we thank you that you chose to take on flesh in the person of Jesus to become like us, that you might rescue those like us from our wickedness and from our evil and from our sin. And he came in the midst of this terrible and burdensome and trial-filled world of war and sickness and earthquakes and famine and showed us what it looks like to have a shepherd. Thank you for your provision and thank you for your promise that you will return in great glory and power for your people because in your promise we have hope. Would you grow that hope in our hearts day by day, today and in the coming year that we might know you better and be more patient still. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.